Chapter 5 of Non-Combatants and Others by Rose Macaulay This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anthony Ogus Afternoon Out Alex sat on the bus and rushed through the shining summer morning down Upper Clapton Road, Lower Clapton Road, Mare Street, Hackney Road, Shoreditch, Bishopsgate and so into the city. The noon war news leaped from placards in black and red and green. A mile of trenches taken near Festubert, a mile of trenches lost again. Alex did not care and would not look. Anyhow, it wasn't Paul's part of the line. London was damp and shining under a windy blue sky. They had cleared away the bodies of those struck down last night by motor buses in the dark. What a sacrifice of life! Was it worth while? The traffic was held up every now and then by companies of recruits swinging along in khaki and mufti, jolly, absorbed, resolute, self-conscious or amused. There went down Threadneedle Street the artists' rifles. Some looked like studio artists, pale, intelligent, sometimes spectacled, Others more like pavement artists, others again suggested sign-painters. But this last was probably an illusion, as sign-painters since last August had been mostly too busy painting out and repainting names on signs to have time for soldiering. Many classes have lost heavily by this war, such as publicans, milliners, writers, Belgians, domestic servants, university lecturers, publishers, artists, actors and newspapers. But some have gained. Among these are sheep growers, house agents, sugar merchants, munition makers, colliers, coal owners and sign painters. An unequal world. The bus waited, held up opposite a recruiting station. Alex, looking down, met the hypnotic stare of the great man pictured on the walls and turned away, checking a startled giggle. Anyhow, she was lame and not the sex which goes either, worse luck. On that desperate route of bitterness she never dwelt. That way madness lay. Her swerving eyes fell next on one of the pictures of domestic life designed and executed, so common report had it, by the same great man. The picture, in which an innocent and reproachful infant inquires of a desperately embarrassed but apparently not irate parent, Daddy, what did you do to help when Britain fought for freedom in 1915? Alex giggled again and looked up at the white clouds racing across the summer sky where there was no war nor rumours of war. 2. At Bond Street she left the bus and went to Grafton Street, where there was a small exhibition of pictures by two young artists known to Alex. Here she met by appointment three friends, her fellow students at the art school. Their names were Noni McClure, Oliver Bannister and Thomas Ash. Miss McClure and Mr Bannister were there before her. They greeted her with, What cheer, Joanna? Joanna because in a play composed and produced recently by their combined talent, Alex had taken this part. Alex went to speak to the exhibitors who were standing about and failing to look detached, 
and began to look round, murmuring to her friends, "'What's this show like? Oh, she's got that yellow thing in,' and so forth. Presently Mr. Thomas Ashe joined them. It may here be mentioned, lest readers should be unfairly prejudiced against Mr. Ashe and Mr. Bannister, that one of them had a frozen lung and the other a distended aorta. They were quite good young men, really, and would have preferred to go. They criticised and appreciated the pictures for an hour, with the interesting criticism and over-appreciation usually poured forth by young persons on the works of their fellow students and contemporaries, often at the expense of the older and staler, and less in the only movement that really matters. "'That's like some of Doy's things,' said one of the young men, and the other said, "'Doy's wounded, isn't he? I saw it in the paper today. I hope it's not much.' Alex said it wasn't. "'He's on his way home. I hope they send him to a hospital in town so we can all go and see him.' Noni McClure shot her a curious glance. She had never known quite how deep the intimacy between these two had gone. She sometimes wondered. She had thought just before the war that it went very deep indeed. But in these present days Alex seemed prepared to play round at large with so many young men, and to flirt, when that was the game, with a light-handed recklessness only exceeded by Noni herself. And Noni, of course, was notorious. 3. They went out to lunch. The world is divided into those who have lunch in their own homes, those who have lunch in someone else's, those who have lunch in hotel restaurants, those who have lunch in nice eating shops, those who have lunch in less nice eating shops, such as ABCs, those who have lunch in eating shops very far from nice, those who have lunch in handkerchiefs, and those who do not have lunch at all. The classes are, of course, not rigid. Many people alternate from day to day between one and another of them. Alex and her friends were, most days, either in class four or class five. Today they were in class four, being out for a happy day, and they had lunch in a little place in Soho, full of orange trees in green tubs and sunshine and macaroni. They found one another interesting, entertaining and attractive. Noni McClure was dark and good-looking, a fitfully brilliant worker and a consistently lively companion. Oliver Bannister was gentle and fair and delicate and indifferent to most things, only not to art or to Noni McClure. He had tried to get passed for the army, but as he was rejected, he settled down tranquilly and without the bitterness that eats the souls of so many of the medically and sexually unfit. He recognised the compensations of his lot. Tommy Ash, on the other hand, was bitter and angry like Alex. Like her, he would have hated the war anyhow, even if he had been fighting, being a sensitive and intelligent youth. But as it was, he loathed it so much that he would never mention it unless he had to, and then only with a sneer. It was partly this that drew him to Alex, and her to him. They were in the same case so they found they could trust one another not to talk of the indecent monster. Also, he admired her unusual, delicate, ironic type. Anyhow, it was a fashion to have some special friend among the girls at the school, and it helped one to forget. 
so he and Alex plunged into a flirtation not normally natural to either. The four of them flirted and ragged and joked, and were funny all the afternoon, which they spent in Richmond Park. Alex and Tommy Ash went off together and lost the other two, and lay on the grass, and became rather more intimate than they had ever been before. When soldiers strolled by, they looked the other way, and pretended not to see, and talked very fast about anything that came into their heads. Sometimes the soldiers were wounded. Once a party of them, in hospital blues, sat down quite near them, with two girls in VAD uniform, who called the soldiers by their surnames and chaffed them. They were all being merry and funny and having a good time. One was a boy of eighteen, pink-cheeked and hilarious, with his right leg cut short just below the thigh. "'Look here, it's time we found those two people,' said Alex, sitting up. "'We must really set about it in earnest.' So they went away, but presently they felt more like tea than finding the others, so they had some. When finally the party joined itself together, it went to Earl's Court, and had a hilarious hour flip-flapping, wiggle-woggling, and joy-wheeling. It desisted at half-past six, dishevelled, battered and bruised, and separated to fulfil its respective evening engagements. 4. Alex went to see her brother Nicholas. Nicholas was a journalist on the staff of a weekly paper which cost sixpence, and with whose politics he was not in agreement. As there was no paper, weekly, sixpenny or otherwise, with whose politics he was in agreement, this was not strange. It may further be premised of Nicholas that he was twenty-seven years old, of good abilities, thought war too ridiculous a business for him to take part or lot in, was probably medically unfit to do so, but would not for the world have had it proved, was completely lacking in any sense of veneration for anything, negligently put aside as absurd all forms of supernatural religion, shared rooms with a curate friend in Clifford's Inn, and had from an infant reacted so violently against the hereditary enthusiasm which nevertheless looked irrepressibly out of his eyes, that he had landed himself with an unintelligent degree of cynicism in all matters. Hither Alex went, when the evening sunshine lay mellow on Chancery Lane. Alex had a curious and quite unaccountable feeling for Chancery Lane. It seemed to her romantic beyond all reason. Just now it was as some wild lane on the battlefront, or like a trench which has been shelled, for the most recent airship raid had ploughed it up. A week ago it had been the scene of that wild terror and shrieking confusion which is characterised by a euphemistic press as no panic. Alex limped past the chaos quickly. An old man tried to sell her a paper. Star Lady, Globe, Pall Mall, Evening News. British failed to hold conquered trenches. Alex hurried by. The news vendor turned his attention to someone else. Evening papers, of course, are interesting and should not really be missed. They often contain so much news that is ephemeral and fades away before the morning into the light of common day. 
they are as perishable and never to be repeated as some frail and lovely flower. But Alex, ignoring them, reached Clifford's Inn and climbed the narrow oak stairway to the rooms inscribed Mr. N. I. Sandemir, Reverend C. M. V. West. Both these gentlemen were in their sitting room. The Reverend C. M. V. West reposed on a wicker couch, reading alternately two weekly church papers and the Cambridge magazine. One of these papers was high church, another broad church. The third did not hold with churches. The Reverend C. M. V. West was a refined-looking young man, very neatly cassocked, with a nice face and a sense of humour. In justice to him, we must say that he worked very hard as a rule, but had been enjoying a deserved rest before evensong. To Alex, he stood for a queer force that was at work in the world, and which she had been brought up to consider retrograde. Nicholas Sandomir lay in an easy chair, surrounded by review copies of books. He was too broad-shouldered for his height. He was pale and prominent-jawed, with something of the Slav cast of feature. His mouth, like Alex's, was the mouth of a cynic. His eyes, small, overhung, and deep blue, were the eyes of an idealist. This paradox of his face was only one among many paradoxes in him. He was unreliable. He disbelieved in all churches and lived unaccountably with a high church curate. This probably was because he liked him personally and also liked to have an intelligent person constantly at hand to disagree with. Also he came on his father's side of a race of devout and mystic Catholics. He despised war and looked with contempt on peace societies. This was perhaps because, so far as he worshipped anything, he worshipped efficiency and found both peace societies and war singularly lacking in this quality. He detested Germany as a power and loathed the Russia who was combating her. This doubtless was because he was half a Pole. Anyhow, this evening, when Alex came in, he was sulkily, even viciously, turning the pages of a little book he had to review, called, it was one of a series, The Effects of the War on Literature. He waved his disengaged hand at Alex and left it to West, who had much better manners, to get up and put a chair for her and pass and light her a cigarette. "'Did you meet Belgians on the stairs?' inquired West. "'They've put some in the rooms above us, the rooms that used to be Hans Bowers. Five of them, isn't it, Sandemir?' Five to rise,' Nicholas replied. "'The baby due next week, I'm told.' Unarrived babies were among the things not alluded to at Violette in mixed company. No wonder Violette found Nicholas peculiar. "'It's awkward,' West added, lowering his voice and glancing at one of the shut bedroom doors, "'because we keep a German and they can't meet.' "'What do you do that for?' asked Alex unsympathetically. "'Awkward, isn't it?' said West. "'Because they keep coming to see us, the Belgians, I mean. "'They like us, rather. "'And he,' he nodded at the bedroom, "'has to scoot in there till they're gone.' "'It's like dogs and cats. "'They simply can't be let to meet.' "'Well, I don't know what you want with a German anyhow.' "'He's a friend of ours,' explained Nicholas. "'He was living in the Golders Green Garden City. 
and it became so disagreeable for him, they're all so exposed there, you know, nothing hid, that we asked him here instead. If they find him, he's afraid they may put him in a concentration camp, and of course if the Belgians sighted him, they'd complain. He means no harm, but unfortunately he had a concrete lawn in his garden, about ten feet square, where he used to bounce a ball for exercise. Also he had made a level place on his roof, among Mr. Raymond Unwin's sloping tiles, where he used to sit and admire the distant view through a spyglass. It's all very black against him, but he's a studious and innocent little person, really, and he'd hate to be concentrated. It would make one feel so like essence of beef, wouldn't it? West murmured absently. He's not a true patriot, went on Nicholas. He wants the Hohenzollerns to be guillotined and a disruptive country of small warring states to be re-established. He writes articles on German internal reform for the monthly reviews. He calls them Kill or Cure, or A Short Way with Imperialism, or some such bloody title. I don't care for his English literary style, but his intentions are excellent. Well, and how's life? Nicholas turned his small, keen blue eyes on his sister. You look as if you've been out for a joy day. You want some more hairpins, but we don't keep any here. I've been wiggle-woggling, Alex admitted, and added frankly, I feel jolly sick after it. Our family constitution, said her brother, is quite unfit for the strains we habitually subject it to. Mine is. I feel jolly sick too, but my indisposition is incurred in the path of duty. I've got to review the things, so I have to read them little here and there anyhow, and then just as one feels one has reached one's limit, one gets a handbook of wisdom like this to finish one off. He read a page at random from the effects of the war on literature. The war is putting an end to sordidness and littleness, in literature as in other spheres of human life. The second rate, the unheroic, the earthy, the petty, the trivial, how does it look now, seen in the light of the guns that blaze over Flanders? The guns, shattering so much, have at least shattered falsity in art. We were degenerate a little in our literature and in our lives. We have been made great. We have come surely to the heroic, the epic pitch of living. If we cannot express it with a voice worthy of it, then indeed it has failed in its deepest lesson to us. We may expect a renaissance of beauty worthy to rank with a romantic revival born of the French wars. "'Who is the liar?' asked Alex. Nicholas named him. "'I'm thinking,' he added, "'of starting an Effects of the War series of my own. "'I shall call it Some Further Effects. "'It will be designed to dump the spirits of the sanguine. "'I shall do the one on literature myself. "'I shall take revenge in it "'for all the mush I've had to review lately. "'It's extraordinary. "'The stream of, of the heroic and the epic, isn't that it?' that pours forth daily. The war seems to have given an unhealthy stimulus to hundreds of minds and thousands of pens. One knew it would, of course. No doubt it was the same during the siege of Troy and all the great wars. Though, thank heaven, we shall never know, as that sort of froth is blown away pretty quick and lost to posterity. It's only the unhappy and contemporaries who get it splashed all over them. And this war is beastlier than any other, so the rubbish is less counteracted by the decent writers. The first-rate people, 
both the combatants and non-combatants, are too much disgusted, too upset, to do first-rate work. The war's going on, and means to go on, too long. Wells or someone said months ago that people don't so much think about it as get mentally scarred. It's quite true. Lots of people have got to the stage when they can only feel, not think, and the best people hate the whole business much too much to get any renaissance of beauty out of it. Who was it who said the other day that the writers to whom war is glamorous aren't as a rule the ones who produce anything fit to call literature? War's an insanity, and insane things, purely destructive, wasteful, hideous, brutal, ridiculous things, aren't what makes art. The war's produced a little fine poetry among a sea of tosh, a thing here and there, but mostly, oh good Lord, the flood of cheap heroics and all commonplace patriotic claptrap, it's swept slobbering all over us, there seems no stemming it, literary revival be hanged, all we had before, and precious little it was, of decent work, clear and alive and sane and close to reality, is being trampled to bits by this, this imbecile brute, and when the time comes to collect the bits and try to begin again, we shan't be able to. There'll be no more spirit in us. We shall be too battered and beaten. Nicholas wound up to excitement, was talking too long at a stretch. He often did, being an egoist, and having in his veins the blood of many eloquent and excited revolutionary Poles who had stood in marketplaces and talked and talked, gesticulating, pouring forth blood and fire. Nicholas, reacting against this fervour, repudiating gesticulation, blood and fire, still talked. But on battered and beaten he paused, in disgusted emphasis, and West came in, half absently, still turning the pages of the challenge, talking in his high, clear voice, monotonous and fast. Nicholas was guttural and harsh. You underrate the power of human recovery. You always do. It's immense, as a matter of fact. Give us fifty years, twenty, ten. Besides, look at the compensations. If the good are battered and beaten, the bad are too. It's a well-known fact that many of the futurist poets in all the nations have gone mad through trying to get too many battle noises into their heads at once. So they at least are silenced. I suppose they still write in their asylums. In fact, I've heard they do. My uncle is an asylum doctor, but it gets no further. He subsided into the Cambridge magazine. Well, I'd rather have the futurists than the slops poured out by the people who unfortunately haven't brain enough even to go mad, Nicholas grumbled. And anyhow, I don't believe in any of your uncles. You've too many. The futurists at least were trying to keep close to facts, even if they couldn't digest them, but brought them up with strident noises. For these imbeciles, the war seems to be a sort of tonic to their syrupy little souls. It's filled them up with vim and banal joy. Not that the rot that has always been rot particularly matters. It merely means that the people who used to express themselves in one inane way now choose another, no worse but it's the silencing or the unmanning of the good people that matters. His Cathcart's new book. I've just read it. It's the work of a shaken, broken man. It's weak, irrational, drifting, 
with no constructive purpose, no coherence. You can almost hear the guns crashing into it as he tried to write, and the atrocity reports shrieking in his ears, and the poison gas stifling him, and the militarists and pacifists raving round him. His whole world's run off its rails, and upset and broken to bits, and he can't put it right side up again. He's lost his faith in it. He can only fumble and stammer at it helplessly, weak and maundering and incoherent. He ought to be helping to build it up again, but he's lost his constructive power. Hundreds of people have. Constructive force will be the one thing needed when the war is over. Anyone with a programme and the brain and will to carry it out. But where's it to come from? Those who aren't killed or cut to bits will be too adrift and demoralised and dazed to do anything intelligent. We're fast losing even such mental coherence and concentration as we had. Look, for instance, at the two while well, I'm talking, quite interestingly, too. Are you listening? Certainly not. West is reading a church newspaper, and Alex drawing cats on the margins of my proofs. I'm not blaming you. You can't help it. You're mentally and probably morally shattered. I am, too. People are more than ever like segregated imbeciles, each absorbed in his or her own ploy. Effects of the war on human intelligence? That shall be one of my series. I've spent an idiotic day. So have both of you, I should guess. Yet we all three have natural glimmerings of intelligence. I've not spent an idiotic day, said West placidly. Nicholas looked at him sardonically. Well, let's hear about it. By all means. West drew a long breath and began even faster than usual. I'll skip my before-breakfast proceedings, which you wouldn't understand, but they weren't in the least idiotic. After breakfast, I spent an hour talking to a friend of mine on leave from France. The conversation was very interesting and instructive, for me anyhow. We talked about how rotten the grub in the trenches is, how shameless the ASC are, how unreliable time-fused bombs, and so on. Then, since I am a parson, he kindly talked my shop for a change, and naturally very soon Jonah pushed his head in, and Noah, and a few more of the gentlemen who seemed to keep the church doors shut against the British working man. I kicked them outside the church onto the dust heap, and left them there. I hoped to his satisfaction, and came home, and wrote a sermon advocating the disuse of the custom of perusing early Hebrew history, or reading it in churches. It's quite a good sermon, as my sermons go. By the way, that may, I'm hoping, be one of the effects of the war on the church. Will all of us become so anxious to bring the working man into it? And it's very certain he won't come in with the Old Testament legends barring the way. I'll write that one of your series for you, if I may. Well, then I had lunch with a lady who's interested in factory girls' trade unions, and we discussed the ways and means of them. That was jolly useful. He's one of the clergymen, you know, Nicholas explained aside to Alex, who had been said by an eminent dean to be tumbling over one another in their anxiety to become court chaplains to King Demos. He's hopelessly behind the times, of course, because Demos is in fetters now. West's an Edwardian churchman, though he fancies Neo-Post-Georgian. Oh, I'm as early as you like, West said amiably. Pre-Edwardian, Victorian, or even Pauline. I don't mind. 
Well, then I attended a meeting of my parish branch of the UDC. The meeting was broken up by rioters, so I addressed them from a window on freedom of speech. My vicar came along as I was doing so, and came in and lectured me on taking part in political movements. So I stopped and did some parish visiting instead, and had a good deal of interesting conversation, and incidentally was given very strong tea at three different houses. Then I came home and read the Church Times, the Challenge and the Cambridge Magazine. All interesting in their way and quite different. No, I know you don't like any of them. People write to the Challenge every week asking, Are Christianity and war compatible? And come to the conclusion that they are not, but that Christians may often have to fight. People write to the Church Times saying that they have found a clergyman who won't wear a chasuble, and what shall they do to him? People write to the Cambridge Magazine, saying that everyone over forty should be disenfranchised and interned, if not shot. Jolly good papers, all the same. How can they help being written to? None of us can. I get written to myself. Well, next I'm going to church to read Evensong, and for an hour after Evensong, but you wouldn't understand about that. Anyhow, eventually I have supper with the vicar. He ran down with a jerk and turned to Alex, who had been following him with some interest. That's not an idiotic day. Not from my point of view, he informed her. Sounds all right, she said. But it's not the sort of day Nicholas and I were brought up to understand, you know. We know nothing about the church. From not going, I suppose. You should go, he assured her. You'd find it interesting. Of course, it's been largely a failure so far and dull in lots of ways, because we've not yet fulfilled its original intention. It hasn't so far succeeded in preventing, though it's fought them and largely lessened them, any of the things it's out to prevent, commercialism and cant and cruelty and classes and lies and hate and war. It's got to break the world to bits and put it together again, and before it can do that it's got to break itself to bits and put itself together. It's got to become like dynamite and blow up the rubbish, its own rubbish first, then the world's. He consulted his wristwatch, said, I must go, shook hands with Alex and went quickly, trim and alert and neat, to blow up the world. He talks too much, said Nicholas in his hearing. Who doesn't in these days? I do myself. It's better than to talk too little. If we say a great deal, we may say a word of sense sometimes. If we say very little, the odds that all we do say is rubbish, from lack of practice. He yawned. You better stay to dinner. I've got Andreevich Romevsky coming, to meet Adolf Kopfer, our German friend. So talk on the European situation will be hampered and constrained. Funny thing he stands for, Alex commented, still thinking of Mr. West. The church, I suppose it really is out to stop war. Presumably, but as its representatives say, its endeavours so far have been a frost. It has been as unsuccessful as the peace conference's mother attends. But apparently the members of both are obliged by their faith to be incurable optimists. West's always full of life and hope. Nothing daunts him. Funny, Alex mused still. The thought glanced through her. Clergymen can't fight either. They're like me. Perhaps religion helps them to forget. 
takes their mind off. Like painting, like Richmond Park and Tommy Ash, like wiggle-woggling, I wonder. On that wonder she left the church and said, "'Cousin Emily asked me to bring you back to supper with me. "'You'd meet the Vinnies from the nutshell, who are coming in afterwards, "'so we should be a nice party,' she says. "'But Evie says you and the Vinnies wouldn't get on. "'I don't think Evie thinks you're fit for respectable society at all. "'So you'd better not come.' "'Shouldn't dream of it,' Nicholas grunted. "'Even if I hadn't got Russians and Germans coming here, "'you and your violettes and your nutshells.' It beats me what you think you're up to there. Alex gave her faint, enigmatic smile. It's nice and peaceful, she said, like cotton wool. Well, good night, Nicky. No, I won't stay to dinner, thanks. You can tackle your own awkward social situations for yourself. I'm for Violette. 5. She limped down the wooden stairs, and the court was golden in the evening light a haven beyond which the wild river of Fleet Street surged. Special, war extra, British driven back. The cries, the placards, were like lost ships, tossed lightly on the top of wild waters. They would soon sink if one did not listen or look. End of chapter 5